So Rodney, before you start, I want to tell you what's different about the way that I'm looking at lynching. Traditionally, most people who have studied lynching are looking at it either historically or sociologically or anthropologically, and now we call those cultural studies. But in the beginning, when people were, were challenging lynch law, those were sociologists. And so they are most uh, interested in counting, right? How many people got killed? How many people were hanged? How many people were shot? How many people were dragged behind the car? What county were they in? What state were they in? Those are the kinds of demographics that sociologists frequently concern themselves with. Historians want to tell you what happened. But I take the distinction that history is not what happened, it is what was said to have had happened. And what was said to have happened is gonna come from a cultural perspective. So if you're an Anglo-centric person, you're gonna see what happened as a challenge to authority, for example. You'll be concerned with what white men are doing, for example. You're, you're interested in how power is seized or perpetuated or thwarted even. If you are looking at this from some other kind of perspective, and in this case, I'm looking at it from a literary perspective, I am a cultural critic and the cultural critic looks at the way that narrative constructs reality. I was looking for these Lynch and narratives for 20 years. I started out in, in 2000 when Toni Morrison published Paradise. And the, the novel starts with the words, they kill the white girl first. With the rest, they can take their time. And it's about a black lynch mob. And I'm like, oh, she's being metaphoric. There are no black lynch mobs. So I go through the book and I'm trying to see how she has created, she's, she, she's appropriating this metaphor and using it for her own intentional purposes. Au contraire, a year later I realized Oh, there were black lynch mobs. Black people lynched. Everybody lynched. But if I want to be all powerful, I got to say, I'm the only one that lynched. Lynching proves my authority. If I can come in here and kill you, then I have authority, right? If you can come in here and kill somebody, something's wrong. There's no such thing as that. And so black lynch mobs get written out the record. How can all these people have been talking about lynch mobs since 1889 when Harriet, I mean not Harriet, Ida B. Wells publishes the red record and nobody mentions black lynch mobs? Wouldn't that have been front page news somewhere? And let me really take your hat. South Carolina, a black lynch mob lynches a white man with the impunity of his community. The community's like, yeah, he needed lynching. We ain't gonna stop you. Y'all go ahead and lynch him. Right? Who's ever heard of that? It, but it, the, these are the kinds of things that don't get told when you control what narratives people are exposed to. You're listening to the latest edition of History Notes, and I'm your host, Rodney Dawson, the curator of education at the Greensboro History Museum. And as you might be able to tell, we're already delving into the topic we're examining the history of lynching, but not only from a national perspective, but also localizing it to Guilford County, North Carolina, where the Greensboro History Museum is located. There's one lone documented case that occurred in Guilford County. And I dare say it's not the only time it happened, but it's the lone documented time. We'll examine that, that incident uh, 
Eugene Harrison in August of 1887 accused of accosting a white woman, young white lady in Kernersville. Uh, he was taken to jail. There was fear, in fear that his life, the authorities there in fear that his life was in jeopardy. So they brought him to the Greensboro jail where a mob formed and lynched him in what is now known as, what it was called then, Mr. Jackson's Farm. We believe we know where that location is and we're gonna to talk to some individuals about that and, and get a deep dive into that incident and hear more from the, the lady that started this podcast, Dr. Deborah Barnes, a lynching scholar, uh, adjunct professor at UNCG, and uh, I could go on and on with her achievements and accolades, but she's our lynching scholar. And uh, so I'm gonna jump in and out of this sensitive topic, but I'll first like to start it now and just learn something that I needed to know, more of a, a definition of what lynching is. I thought there might be many like myself that was, was not quite clear on that. So I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Barnes to expound on that a little bit. Originally, lynching was defined as an extra legal murder by three or more people who were acting in the place of a justice system. And in that way, that would include vigilantes. It kind of morphs a little bit after that into people who are acting in service to culture and tradition, which is to say whiteness, okay? I don't want to talk about those categories I, because I, the minute you, you talk about categories, you're eliminating other things that might also belong in there. Right. And so I want to, another thing that American education does is to teach you to categorize, right, to, to analyze and classify. You're always putting things into columns. Before you said lynching and everybody thought was one of your things, you said hanging. Mm -hmm. Lynching does not mean hanging. Lynching, you don't even have to die. You owe it to yourself to die because you're going to be wrong every day after that. But you don't have to die, right? And so everybody's interested in expanding what that is. So, but they expand it pretty much all in the same way. They tell about lynching incidents. So in the beginning, they're counting the number of Black people who have been murdered. And if you look up lynching statistics now, you're going to find out there's like 4,763 people who were murdered between these eras. Well, if you started at some other point, you'd have a different number. If you counted people who weren't black, who weren't living on the East Coast, and we know that the East Coast is America, right? When you talk about America, you talk about the East Coast. Nobody knows anything about the rest of the country except California, right? There's the East Coast and there's California and all those places in between. We don't care about them. We don't know who's dying. We don't know who's living and what difference does it make anyway? And so that number is trash. They have been killing people since they got off the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. Okay, anybody ran across that got in the way of making money had to go. I'm going to make it that simple that it was about the money. Lynching becomes an entrepreneurial opportunity. And it's one of the distractions we have is that we're always talking about it in terms of racial hatred. And certainly racial hatred is a function of it. But people are making money. These newspapers make money. Uh, it's like sweeps week. You know, every time they can change the story. So you have like a newspaper in a place that'll have a daily. Uh, and now because there's, the, there's been an incident and there's the threat of a lynching, 
you may have three or four versions of that paper come out in the same day, every day until, until that crime is atoned for. So people can make money that way. Just like now, they'll take all of that and write a book. And now they're going to make, well, you don't make a lot of money off of writing books then or now because people don't read. And in those days, people couldn't read. Uh, but there was still money to be made. If you had a spectacle lynching and 10,000 people show up in your town like they did in Paris, Texas, those people have to eat. Some of them have to sleep. They have to get there. You're selling cars, train seats, gasoline, food, drink, shotgun shells, rope, lumber for the scaffold. And then they would take whatever was left of the desecrated body and sell those parts for money. Um, one thing that turns W.B. Du Bois into the firebrand he becomes is seeing the knuckles of an executed, lynched man in the store window as he's walking by in Atlanta. That turns the train around for him. I as you'll hear us talk about later in this podcast, lynching took place in almost every state in the Union, not just Southern states. However, if you had to make a list where the most documented lynchings occurred, and you could take a visit to Statista.com on the number of executions by lynching in the United States by state and race between what is known as the lynching era of 1882 and 1968, you'll find that 13 of the top 15 states listed are southern states. There is one lone documented case here in Guilford County that is of Eugene Harrison, who was accused of raping a young white girl whom he was allegedly uh, found to be with in Colfax. Again, we'll mention the details of this case more than once because we feel it important for you to hear. In fact, an organization called the Guilford County Community Remembrance Project, or GCCRP, was created when a group of citizens visited the Equal Justice Initiative, or EJI, uh, which is headed by Brian Stevenson. Uh, EJI, EJI operates the Legacy Museum from enslavement to mass incarceration in Montgomery, Alabama. And by doing so, when they visited, visited, they were encouraged to find out who was lynched in your county and begin an investigation uh, that's intended to lead to uh, marking the location with the marker uh, where the lynching is believed to have happened, plus spark conversation around this troubled history and reckon with the challenging aspects of our past. Lynching, along with codified racial segregation, mass incarceration, and the maintenance of racial superiority or white supremacy all played hand in hand, but lynching was the tool of terror to keep black people in their place so that they wouldn't take part in larger society, whether that be voting, uh, moving into predominantly white areas, occupying jobs traditionally held by whites. It was used to keep schools integrated. It was using terror to intimidate. You could lynch just one or a few. But you left the body hanging in order to showcase and warn dozens, if not hundreds, of other African-Americans. There was one of the more well-known lynchings in Paris, Texas in 1893, where a black man, Henry Smith, was burned at the stake in front of 10,000 onlookers who traveled by train and some walked and horseback to see the lynching. Pictures were sold. Uh, hunters eagerly sought every scrap of clothing that could be salvaged as a collector's item. And because of the brutality of this event, it garnered more attention than other lynchings. As you'll probably hear uh, later, over 4,700 documented lynchings happened between 1882 and 1968. 
and many drew extremely large crowds. But this one drew notice from newspapers across the country because it seemed to involve what was said to be ordinary people who brought children and other family members to see Henry Smith tortured with hot irons for nearly an hour before being doused with kerosene and set ablaze. It became the origin of what was to be called a spectacle lynching. Lynchings would now become events for people to witness and see. It was said that Smith proclaimed his innocence when originally taken by the authorities, but by the time uh, he was brought back to town and they had been already begun planning for the lynching and an armed posse had formed and surrounded him upon his return to town, he confessed to the crime. Um, what happened here in Guilford County didn't involve thousands. There was said to have been an angry mob of 50 to 100 people involved and some of them masked and the body was left hanging the GCCRP is investigating this lynching and have gathered quite a few details. Dr. Barnes is a founding member of the GCCRP, along with Terry Hammond and uh, Karen Skelton, who joined later. I asked Terry and Carrie, uh, Karen to come by, but right now I want us to hear from uh, Terry Hammond, and I want her to share her experiences and work that she's doing uh, with this Finding Eugene and our examination on the history of lynching. And so we needed more particulars uh, and beyond just, you know, those basic facts. And one of the other founding members of our group is Dr. Deborah Barnes, and you'll be interviewing her as part of this uh, podcast series, I believe. She is a lynching scholar, and she was interviewed by the Greensboro News and Record, I think it was in 2003, and so she provided more of the details um, at the beginning. But we still wanted to answer more of the who, what, where, when, how, why kinds of questions. And so another thing that kind of played into it is that EJI's values um, are, are part of our agreement in working with them. And so one of them is authenticity. And by that, they mean they want to prioritize the voices of the people that are most closely involved um, in, in the lynching. And so that helped us try to kind of define the scope of who we're looking for. And so for me, one of the first things they, they were saying, we want you to see if you can find living family members of the person who was lynched. And if you find them, try to involve them in the process of, you know, doing this work in, in the community and being being part of how how we do it. And uh, so some of the other questions um, we wanted to, you know, know more about Eugene Hairston as a person. Uh, it's just a name. What was he like? You know, how old was he? What what were the circumstances? Who were who were his family members? You know, what was his mother and father? And you know, did he have brothers and sisters? Um, what can we find out? You know, from them and by you know looking more deeply into that. Um, and a result of that, you know, can we find any? living relatives alive today who might help us. 
Um, and a thing that I wanted to say is that we're trying to find someone who never had the chance to tell his side of the story. And so um, his story was so quickly forgotten and erased. And I may interject every now and then. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> With the research that you did, trying to find, you just said something important. You were trying to give voice to someone who never had one. Did you find any other victims who had a similar uh, lack of voice? Well, when it came to lynching. Or what did um, you? I mean, we're we're only researching this particular mm -hmm. lynching, uh, and there were certainly, you know, like his family members right. didn't get to tell their side of the story either, and so you know, basically, like. Who's writing the newspaper stories? It's white, white newspapers. We haven't found any African-American publications that there are copies existent today um, that wrote about this. And so, you know, the, the white press is, and Karen uh, Skelton will probably talk more in more detail about this, but the white press uh, really is biased and um, the words that they put into Hairst Eugene Hairston's mouth, for one thing, they change in just about every publication that you read, you know, oh, you know, right before his death, he's said to be praying in one and another one, he's speechless and another one, he's crying and, you know, so on. Um, so... The other thing that's just kind of astounding is we have not been able to find very much information after the fact of the uh, of the lynching. So the the week of and the month of, you know, there are stories in papers and they're all over the country, but you know, after that, there are some. Uh, editorials that talk about how, well, maybe lynching is wrong, but in this case it was warranted because we have to protect white womanhood and um, that sort of thing. And so also in this case, there was a, a jury assembled at the site of the lynching because there were African-American men present, and they said, you know, with some investigation, the white perpetrators of this crime might be identified. And so they agreed to form a jury and to meet again the following week. And we have not been able to find any records that such a meeting ever occurred. So um, that's another thing, another one of the who's, you know, who were members of the mob? Who were the sheriff and the other law officers involved? Um, who who served on this jury? Um, and who were the people writing the stories about it? So Terry, we're Terry Hammond. We, we believe we are where uh, the site where Eugene Harrison is believed to be uh, have been lynched. 
describe what you see here with all with all the studying you, you're doing now that we're out here. How are you feeling? Describe what you see here. Well, any trace of uh, the, the site where Eugene Hairston was lynched has been erased. It's been paved over. Uh, it's now part of a parking lot for uh, Presbyterian Church of the Covenant and Moorhead Avenue uh, that connects Mendenhall Street to Jackson Street. And we can hear the traffic going by. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the schoolhouse lot is, is obliterated. Um, the trees are gone. There, there is no evidence. Um, but because of uh, the, the clues that we found, we were able to identify that, you know, this is the site that was described in the newspaper article. We've still got a lot to look into and a lot more to know. It's History Notes. We're examining the history of lynching, both from a national perspective and looking into the long-documented case of Eugene Harrison. That was Terry Hammond and Dr. Deborah Barnes. And when we return, we'll hear from Karen Skelton, who went to just about every library she could and scoured the internet and really broke down the investigation. And she came up with a narrative behind lynching that we'll talk more about when we return. How do you take the history in a place like this, famous for all of the learning tools of yesteryear, and then connect the generations together including the diverse and digital learners of today? The Greensboro History Museum Education Webinar Series. Engage, learning, and beyond. Let's go. All right, and uh, you know, I always oh, never asked you this question uh, before in one-on-one -on -one conversation, so I guess I'll ask you with a mic in front of me. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Well, it's interesting. You made, you mentioned Louis Brandon. He and I are from the same hometown, Asheville, North Carolina, and we both came to Greensboro for the purpose of going to North Carolina A&T. I must admit that uh, Mr. Brandon's a little ahead of me in my time. I did not know him until I got here and actually did not realize uh, how knowledgeable he was of Greensboro to after I graduated from college and he actually started working in my current position and I got to know more about Lewis Brandon but he is a phenomenon in himself. Great That's history. Max Sims and with the East Market Street Development Corporation. Look for Max Sims contributions on our upcoming History Notes podcast special The History of East Greensboro. But for now, let's get back to finding Eugene an examination on the history of lynching. All right, Karen, you're our logistical guru. You delve into the weeds and you do what I can't do, read all those articles, put things together. So God bless you and we appreciate you. Uh, so we're now turn, turning to Karen Skelton. She's another researcher with the GCCRP. And um, Karen, do you have a particular area of research that you focused on? And if so, what does it look like? Yes, um, I have two. The first one being the newspaper article accounts. I came into this project after it was already in full swing and I needed to get myself up to speed. 
So I looked over the uh, three or four articles that had been gathered to understand what was reported. Um, I took that at face value, but even then I saw the discrepancies in the articles. And so I thought, let's get this all organized, put it in a spreadsheet so we have hyperlinks, titles, page numbers, so that anybody who comes into this project can pick up where we left off. So as I started creating an Excel spreadsheet, I started really paying attention to the differences and that spurred me to go look for more. And as a genealogical researcher, I have accounts for things like newspapers.com. Um, I go to Chronicling in America, which is the Library of Congress place for um, newspapers. And uh, as I continued looking, as Terry mentioned, not everything is online. And a lot of newspapers, sadly, uh, have been destroyed, just perished uh, with age. Uh, but I did manage to get one through interlibrary loan and went the old-fashioned way and doing the microfilm here at UNC Greensboro. So you're encouraging folks they can use the resources they have right here in town, including the Greensboro Public Library or UNCG? Absolutely. I use the City of Greensboro Library. I use the High Point Library. They have a fantastic heritage research center there and some very knowledgeable uh, genealogical librarians who also participated who who helped in this effort. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but that was a wonderful opportunity to plug our yeah. city resources. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely wanted to do there too. Well, go ahead, continue on. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. That's right. So I started looking at as many newspaper accounts as I could find. I got up to 18 and then started noticing the differences in the writing and began to question who wrote these? Were there any witnesses on premises? This happened in the middle of the night, about 1.45 a.m. Were there reporters there? Who told them about it perhaps early in the morning? Who's embellishing these? If you look at the accounts and you see the variations, you have to ask that question. Who is writing these articles and who is giving this kind of license to embellish. So just a, a couple of quick examples of that. One is when they broke Eugene Harrison out of jail and they brought him down to these trees along Spring Garden Street. It said that he was given a few moments to pray, which he did very earnestly and confessed his guilt. Okay, that came out in the first report that morning from a Greensboro paper. But you continue on and you find things like this. He was asked if he had anything to say. He tried to say something, but he could hardly talk. Another one. The wretched fellow said, quote, I am as innocent as an angel from heaven. And another one, quote, he was given a few moments to pray, which he did very earnestly, declaring his innocence vehemently. Okay, now we have a variety of answers. What did he really say, if anything? And who are these newspaper editors that are allowing this kind of literary license? So that prompted me to continue evaluating the articles and finding as many as I could. And one of the later... Um, 
differences that I found I thought was a pretty stark one. The Kernersville News said that when um, they went to the magistrate, his name was um, Seacrest um, in the town of Colfax, where the alleged assault occurred, um, the newspaper writing in Kernersville said the evidence against him proved the guilt beyond a single doubt. The lady had described him accurately. Nothing was missing. As soon as she saw him, she at once recognized him as the guilty party and swore positively to his being the right person. All right, so this again is a local paper, Kernersville, coming out with initial reporting. However, a few days later, Squire Seacrest travels over to the city of Greensboro. And he talks to a reporter at the Greensboro paper. And he says to them, the young lady did not swear positively that the prisoner was the man who assaulted her. And that came out of uh, the Greensboro North State, which was a Republican-owned newspaper. So that, again, is a pretty big uh, difference between who's, who's reporting this. So I was looking for more of these differences. And then also, I wanted to look at writing uh, art- articles that were written about lynchings in the year preceding and the year following this uh, case with Eugene Hairston. Why is that important? Patterns. Okay. As a, as a researcher, I'm always looking for the patterns. And boy, did I find patterns um, th- that, that floored me, honestly. Um, so I went and consulted with Dr. Deborah Barnes because she is a lynching scholar who is writing um, a book about the narratives of these, and I needed to get a more expert take on what I was seeing. What I found was, I'll start with this one small detail that seemed insignificant in the uh, in the reporting of the Harrison case, and that was the earliest reporting said this happened Tuesday evening. Another said late Tuesday afternoon. From then on. All of the accounts said Tuesday morning and specified half past 10. Okay, that's no big deal. This is this, you know, telephone game. It's getting details mm. off by a bit. No big deal, right? Also, what was young Mahalasap doing out there at half past 10 on a Tuesday morning? She left her parents' farm where she lives. She walked to her grandparents' house, confirmed that through records. Yes, they live nearby. She was delivering fresh milk. And she was on her way home when Eugene Hairston encountered her on the road and allegedly assaulted her. As I looked at articles from 1887 and 1888, I found two others that fit this story. To the point of saying a young teenage girl was carrying food from their farm to market to bring to town. This was in Asheville, North Carolina. At half past 10 in the morning on a weekday. And now I start to look at this not as these are the actual details 
of what happened with Eugene Hairston and an alleged, as they called it, attempted outrage on a young white woman. What I started to see in this pattern is a story. It's the archetype of Little Red Riding Hood and the Big Bad Wolf. That this pure young woman is walking to bring milk to Grandmama's house when the, as they called it, the Negro fiend jumps out of the woods and attacks her. And so now I'm seeing this story, this deep-seated archetype that doesn't need any explanation because everybody knows the stories of these fairy tales. Dehumanization. It is. It's dehumanization. It's also instant subliminal recognition of the Negro brute, as they're so often referred to. And that this continues to solidify this idea in the minds of readers. So then I was curious as to what kind of reach did this account have? This was a quick one done the first night in the middle of the night here in Greensboro. Um, At best count, I have is 44 newspapers across the country reported on this lynching. So then I continued to look in Greensboro, Guilford County area newspapers to see, are they bringing in the accounts of lynchings from farther away? Yes, there's reporting about a lynching that happened in Atlanta, in St. Louis, in Mississippi. In other words, the local reader is being fed a steady diet of these stories, thus further reinforcing the idea of the Negro brute, the dehumanized uh, aspect. Speaking of Negro brute, um, this led me to another. It was challenging to find a lot of these articles. You can't just go into newspapers.com and search under the word lynch because you will get that as a common surname. And I was going to ask you, what did you have to use different techniques? Or Very much so. Uh, lynch got me thousands of results that weren't effective. So I, I, I tried a number of different search terms and the I had the most success with using the terms Negro Brute, Hmm. Fiend, and the two words together, quote, attempted outrage. Spell that for me. For our our listeners who can't see this visually, spell it Negro Brute and Fiend. Negro Brute, N-E-G-R-O-B-R-U-T-E, and Negro Fiend, N-E-G-R-O-F-I-E-N-D, and instead of using the word rape, or most of these were attempted, they were not actual completed uh, assaults. Why, why that distinction? Oh, that's a great question. Um, when you read these, you will find that she's a pure, delicate flower, all of 13, 15, or 17 years old. He is a powerful brute who has a pistol. He strangles her. He hits her in the head with the pistol and says, if you scream, I'll shoot you. And yet he still doesn't complete the deed and runs away. So you have to wonder, does this account really occur? Because I have read now 
dozens and dozens of these accounts and they almost never seem to complete the deed as they call it so looking up the word rape was not helpful so the one that i had the most success with was attempted outrage o-u-t-r-a-g-e and in doing that that's how i found the pattern of these stories of the little red riding hood the young teenage girl and the negro brute the big bad wolf who jumps out of the woods at her while she's on her way to Grandmama's house. I started in the 19th century after reading about 2,000 narratives and books because the, even the word lynching comes from the revolutionary era. That's from, from this military person who was named Lynch and they named lynching for him. So how could it start in the revolutionary era and then jump to 1880? During segregation, right, when we were forced to live to ourselves somewhere else, we were able to practice an Afrocentric worldview, even though we lived in a world that was uh, uh, run and ruled by Anglo-centric people. But once we became uh, integrated, and, and let's just take it all the way, went to the schools, lived in the neighborhoods, ate the food, all of those things pitched us across the line into an Anglocentric existence that is in conflict with our Afrocentric existential makeup. When I got to this year, I felt like I have, I have at least identified 30 lynching narratives. And lynching narratives are melodramatic, voyeuristic accounting of a specific lynching that was written and or published by a lynching participant, spectator, sympathizer, apologist, or victim. So it's an eyewitness account. I was there on January 6th. I was there when they went through the window, and this is what I saw, is what a lynching narrative is. It is a sensational, episodic, voyeuristic. You're always conscious that you're looking in on something that maybe you wouldn't see. Pornographic narrative of murder and gore that legitimizes, or if it's an anti-lynching narrative, delegitimizes mob rule, normalizes gender roles, naturalizes class differences, reifies social hierarchies, and politicizes racial or ethnic inequality. It does a lot of things at one time. And once you publish it, and it's extant, and lots of people can read it, and a lot of people are reading this. This is, this is the big thing, right? Then it becomes the way people think about the world. It's also a confluence of lots of prose forms, the crime drama, so they write it like, a murder has happened. Can we find the murderer? Yellow journalism is Fox News, salacious information that titillates and enrages people and makes them do things. The dime novel, is the first sort of um, narrative, mainstream narrative that people are reading. Uh, everybody is reading because it costs a dime. And regional writing, because remember, my point is all these lynchings are happening in places other than the, um, well, not all of them, but so many of them are happening in places other than the East Coast, and people don't know anything about the territory. The only thing they know is if they go there, because we don't have communication like that, right? So if you went to the territory, 
and that keeps moving, remember, as the, as the nation grows, how would anybody back east know what it was like out there? You have to write them a letter. Or they have to, I don't know, get a, eventually they can get a newspaper. But until they can get a newspaper, there isn't a way for people to know these things. And so this genre steps right into that breach and fills it so that people can find out what it's like to be in Texas with the Texas Rangers. They're going to kill you. That's what it's like. Lynching narratives define and animate whiteness. They are unapologetic in saying it's a white man's country. And they dared come in here and affront white men. I mean, so they're constantly telling you about white men. They, I want to argue, I haven't found out this isn't true yet, but this is one of my theses, theses, thesis, is that they are literally making whiteness into a thing. Prior to this, people are French, they're Portuguese, they're Italian, right? They're from England, they're from Germany, they're Catholics, they're Jews. They're, they're from Central or South America, but they're not white people. White people don't exist as white people till the 19th century. And one of the ways that white people make themselves understood as a coherent group that has power and has the right to dictate that is through lynching. If I can lynch you and get away with it in broad daylight with the cameras and the newspaper there and everybody watching, guess who's white? So the Guilford County Community Remembrance Project is trying to work with EJI Equal Justice Initiative to bring the memorial here for Eugene Harrison. And in the process of that, we looked into Eugene Harrison as much as I have looked into anybody else. And it's almost impossible to find out anything about Eugene Harrison. We can look at the usual places, which are the newspapers. But one of the things you find with the newspapers is just like media today, different newspapers are gonna represent different aspects of that story. So for example, a very small thing, in one, in one newspaper, he's gonna be 17. In another one, he's 16. In another one, he's 20. Which is it? In one newspaper, it says that they sat him on the back of a horse with the noose around his neck and pushed the horse out from under him to, to hang him. And the other one, it said they made him stand up on the back of the horse and pushed him. Well, isn't that all the difference in the world? whether you're sitting on the horse or standing on a horse, and then it moves out from under you. So we still don't know what happened. As I said, history is not what happened. It is what was said to have happened. And so when we go back and look at the um, historical records about that lynching, we come with all kinds of disparate information that, that makes me say, I don't know what happened. When there is a lynching, frequently, and certainly in the case of Eugene Harrison, you don't hear anything about his family again. In fact, in one of the papers, they say he comes from a bad family. What's a bad family? Um, a bad family by whose standard? Now we're back to where I'm saying we're talking about different worldviews. Anybody who says, I didn't do it, officer, is a bad Negro, then and now. <laughs> so we don't know how to find him, there's nothing to find out about him except the fact that he is dead uh, and the fact that he is alleged to have been involved uh, with a white woman and is caught doing it and is punished for that. Now, let's talk about the white woman for a minute. 
Ida B. Wells reveals this in her um, book, The Red Record, which changes everything. And it's part of the reason how lynching becomes associated with black people, uh, because Ida B. Wells is the person who really takes that to the press. What Ida B. Wells says in her book about white women is that frequently these are consensual relationships. But then once they are discovered, um, the, 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 the woman has to negate it. She has to say, oh no, you attacked me because there are rules to living in society. And the rule is that no woman, no white woman should consort with a black man. history of lynchings in the United States and their legacy today. After five years of exhaustive research and interviews with local historians and descendants of lynching victims, the Equal Justice Initiative found white Southerners lynched nearly 4,000 black men and women and children between 1877 and 1950. Nearly 700 of those lynchings were previously unaccounted for. The report details a 1916 attack in which a mob lynched Jeff Brown for accidentally bumping into a white girl as he ran to catch a train. In an example from 1940, a crowd lynched Jesse Thornton for not addressing a white police officer as Mr. In many cases, the lynchings were attended by the entire white community in an area. White supremacy had always been an important political factor in some areas of the South. Again, political leaders rushed to the defense of segregation. Within the South, we must organize every county, every city, and every community into a grassroots organization such as you represent here tonight. late 1880s, lynching took on a different face in the South, years after Reconstruction, was known as an unpopular and particularly dark period in American history during a post-Civil War federal occupation of the South. White men would often use terror through lynching to intimidate and control the newly freed Black population. As heard in earlier conversations with Dr. Barnes and Karen Skelton, lynching occurred with many ethnicities and nationalities. However, at some point, it took on a black face and became synonymous with black people. In 1888, for the first time, the number of black lynching victims exceeded the number of white people killed. While lynching happened in just about every state in the Union, in fact, nearly 90% of these states would have lynching incidents, it would become seen as a Southern thing and a black thing. Alarmed by the number of lynchings, various groups began trying to keep records of the incidents, but these numbers are largely considered inaccurate due to the under-reporting under of lynching for fear of retribution or just plain having no one to report it to. And many didn't have a clear understanding of what's considered a lynching, which is why we had Dr. Barnes offer us a definition at the beginning of the podcast. We've heard from scholars like Grace Elizabeth Hale. She's an associate professor of history at the University of Virginia. She said, nobody is ever going to know the number. We can't be sure we have found all the bodies. And we do know that at the very minimum, uh, it's over 4,700. And black people make up the overwhelming majority of these lynchings, and they went, the uh, majority of them went unsolved. In North Carolina, there were documented, or over 101, 101 people were reported being lynched, and 86 of them were black. And that, again, I can't stress enough, that was the uh, documented number. We've discussed the one lone lynching in Guilford County, that of Eugene Harrison. 
on August 25, 1887. He was a 20-year-old accused of raping Mahala Sapp in Colfax. He was jailed in nearby Kernersville and transferred to Greensboro for fear that a mob of masked men would kidnap him. However, the mob of 5,200 men came to Greensboro that night to abduct Harrison. And when the jailer refused to surrender Eugene Harrison, the mob broke into the Greensboro jail, took Harrison, and went to what was then the suburbs of Greensboro between the hours of 2 and 3 in the morning. And uh, they hanged 20-year-old Eugene Harrison, riddled his torso with bullets, and left his body hanging there for school children to see later that day. The newspaper accounts quickly spread throughout the nation, and none reported the same facts, and none had any accounting of who Eugene was, what kind of man he was, no accountings from his family members. All quickly reported him as a rapist or accused of raping, and almost deserving of what happened to him despite the absence of a true investigation, any parsing of facts, any trial of his peers. He was the menace, the brute, not a man, just an offender, according to the many who told the story for him. It's the story that's ignited fierce passions across the nation as allegations of racism and miscarriage of justice tear apart a small Florida town. Three weeks ago, Trayvon Martin, an unarmed black teenager, was shot down by a white neighborhood watchman who claimed self-defense and has not at this point been arrested. And it's caused a public outcry that spread like wildfire. This is a CBS News special report. I'm Catherine Herridge in Washington. A jury in Georgia has reached a verdict in the Ahmad Arbery murder trial. A father and son, Gregory and Travis McMichael, and a neighbor, William Roddy Bryan, chased down Arbery, a 25-year-old black man, and shot him to death in February of 2020. The men say they suspected Arbery of burglaries in the neighborhood and chased him in a truck to detain him for police in a citizen's arrest, but prosecutors said the men started the conflict. The verdict is about to be read. Let's listen in. Lynching was one of the tools to terrorize African-Americans, mainly to keep them in their place and to uphold white supremacy. The struggle to maintain white supremacy would be fought and continues to be fought. Contrary to common belief, rape was not the most frequent reason cited for white men to lynch black men. Murder topped that list, according to a Tuskegee University study, at 41%. Rape was alleged in about 19% of those cases. But charges didn't have to be that severe to justify lynching. Remember, it was an act of authoritarianism or control. Offenses charged against black lynching victims included being obnoxious, voting for the wrong party, disorderly conduct, vagrancy, even unpopularity. It's not popular that you own a car nicer than mine. You have means beyond mine. You own too much land. After the accounting of lynching ended in the late 1960s, uh, upholding segregation became paramount. And when one encroaches boundaries that are meant to separate the races, many see actions that derive from lynching still occurring today. We want to thank Dr. Deborah Barnes, as well as Terry Hammond and Karen Skelton with the Guilford County Community Remembrance Project for joining us and contributing mightily to this History Notes episode, Finding Eugene and Examining the History of Lynching. And thank you for listening. Until next time, good day.